All right, we're going to jump back into the scriptures. We're in Malachi, and uh, we're coming, like I said, it's a short series in Malachi. And before you know it, we're going to be in our, our pre-Easter mode. So we're, this is flying by, believe it or not. We're already in March, and Easter comes a couple weeks into April, and uh, so right around the corner. So we're in uh, Malachi chapter 2, verses 17 to, uh, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 15. And we've been doing this series called Getting Life Right. Getting life right, because Malachi covers all these different subjects about how to how to get life right. We talked about worship; that was the first one, chapter one. Uh, getting worship right, getting ministry right, which is to serve one another. That we're all priests; uh, that uh, the priesthood of all believers, all those in Christ, are called to do ministry. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about getting holiness right, and then next week, the last uh, week of this series, getting hope right. So this week, getting holiness right. Now, holiness is kind of an insider word uh, used in churches. You don't hear it much outside of church. Uh, but it's really just a word that means to set apart. Something to be holy means for it to be set apart. So if there's a, a particular sheep, for example, in ancient Israel, that was meant for, the, uh, for God, set apart for God, that would be considered a holy lamb, a holy sheep. If there was a shovel that even had utensils that were used in the temple, if it's set apart, then that's considered holy. But we're called, as God's people, to be set apart in the way we live. Set apart for the Lord. In Malachi, in chapter 3 here, as we're going to be looking at, does not have a very high view of how Israel is doing when it comes to being set apart. They're, not, they're failing miserably. They're not living lives that are set apart for the Lord. They're living lives that are set apart for themselves. They're living for their own pleasure and not serving the Lord, as we'll see. But the calling still applies to us today, the calling to be set apart. This is an illustration of this. You know, we have a, a usually probably have a, a pocket full of coins, and it is at least somewhat possible that in your pocket you might have a 1943 copper alloy penny, which would look just like pretty much any other penny, but it's considered the most valuable Lincoln penny in the world, and there are supposedly only 40 of them known to exist. So if you have this penny, you might want to set it apart from the rest, because the last one sold for $1.7 million. So you may end up using it at a store for one cent, when in actuality that penny is worth about $1.7 million. If you knew that that was the penny in your pocket, my guess is you would set it apart from the rest, right? Now, it may look the same, but there's something different about it. It should be set apart from the rest. And I think that's what the Lord is saying to us. Hey, we look the same. Our appearance is the same. We look like anyone else. But his people are called to live lives that are set apart from others. Not physically set apart, not meaning we separate from other people physically, but spiritually, in the way we live our lives, there's something different. What does it mean to be set apart for the Lord? Look with me at Malachi chapter 2, we'll have it on the screen, starting at verse 17, and we'll go right into 3, verse 15. He writes, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, 
Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah in Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? But you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test. And they escape. The word of the Lord. As I said here, I think the point of this passage is a call to holiness. A call to be to live lives that are set apart for God. And there's an outline in your bulletin. If you'd like to know where we're going, um, just look. And uh, we're going to cover four points. Uh, first, be refined and purified by the work of Jesus. Then stand in awe of God's judgment and his justice. Take advantage of the blessings of generosity and then count the cost of serving the Lord. So let's start with be refined and purified by the work of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 17, going on to 3, 4. And uh, in 2, 17, well, this is sort of the introduction, most people would say, to this section of Scripture. So even though it's in chapter 2, it's really the introduction to what's happening in chapter 3. Remember the chapters and verses, they're not um, inspired. They came much later on. They're very helpful, but they're not inspired of God. They're just sort of a breakdown of the passage. Uh, but chapter 2, verse 17, he says, the people of Israel are saying, um, uh, God says, how have, you, uh, how have we wearied him? We've wearied the Lord. And God answers by saying that those who do evil are doing good. Or asking, where is the God of justice? And the point being, the people are saying, what good does it do to actually serve the Lord? Those who live lives that are good get the same blessings as those who live lives that are evil. Where is the God of justice? There's no difference to actually serve God. That's what they're saying. And his answer to that is, verse 3, 
uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger before them. Now, there's no, you'll notice if you look closely, there are, there are three people or three persons that are kind of talked about here in this section. He says, first, I'm going to send my messenger. And the messenger's job is to prepare the way for the Lord. So that's the second person, the Lord. And then comes the messenger of the covenant, who's the one who refines and purifies. So you've got three persons. Who are they? Well, if you're the one who likes prophecies and likes to see how they're fulfilled, you've got a great passage right here because this, un, this is unquestionably written before the time of Jesus, well before, centuries before the time of Jesus. Uh, and no, there's no, no question about that. And yet clearly this is talk of this messenger who prepares the way. Who's the messenger? The New Testament says this is John the Baptist. He fulfills this job of preparing the way for the Lord. Uh, and who is the messenger of the covenant? And that's Jesus. And Jesus' job, as he comes here, is to do the very thing we're talking about. Enable us to live lives that are set apart for God. He is the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. He's the one who purifies us, and he's the one who cleanses us. Now, I don't know if you know what a fuller is. Uh, maybe you're not familiar with the term fuller. Uh, a fuller is somebody who makes soap <laughs> and uses soap. I didn't realize how old soap is. I thought soap was kind of a somewhat modern invention. Actually, soap goes way back. Uh, soap uh, goes back to at least as far as 2,800 years before Jesus. So 4,800 years ago uh, in Babylon, they found clay cylinders uh, that were uh, marked as those for making soap, believe it or not. So soap is made from fats and oils mixed with lye. So soap goes way back. So that's what a fuller is, somebody who makes soap and uses it to clean things. And here Jesus is described as the one who comes to do two things, to refine us from dross and impurity, somebody who works with metals like gold and silver, and as the fuller. And ultimately he says he will make it so that their offering is now pleasing to the Lord. As we've been reading in Malachi, their offering was not pleasing to the Lord. Their offering uh, was not acceptable. In fact, it was so bad. Their offerings were so bad in the temple. What does Malachi say? I wish someone would just shut the doors and stop allowing people to come and offer sacrifices because they're so bad. Well, here it says Jesus is going to make, is going to make their offering pleasing once again. He's the messenger of the covenant. The point is, friends, that God is in the business of making us holy, of setting us apart as his people to live lives set apart for him. And how does he do it? He does it by Jesus. He does it by the messenger of the covenant. Jesus came to make us holy. And he does that in two ways. It's important if you can follow this. He does it first in status. He makes it so that we are holy in God's sight by his death on the cross. Nothing we do can earn us that status before God. Jesus, as our Savior, as our atonement, the one who dies for us on the cross, takes our sin upon himself so that only through faith are we now seen as holy in the sight of God. That's the first way he does it. We are now, as if in a court of law, seen as not guilty, seen as innocent, simply by faith in him. He is the one who makes us clean. But more than that, he doesn't end there. That's the beginning point. And then from there, he begins to change our lives, so that our lives actually begin to be set apart, to be holy, to reflect who we are in in our very status. He is the fuller and the fuller soap. He is the one who makes us clean, and he does it by his own death for us. You know that image in the book of Revelation of everyone standing in, in white robes. It says they're bleached so clean that no bleach on this planet could ever make them that clean, right? 
because he's the one who makes us clean. I think that's a symbol of our sins being so wiped clean from us. He has made us holy and set apart for him. And he is the refiner and the refiner's fire, the one who purifies our lives from dross. Now, the way that worked is you had gold, you know, it was mined out of a, a cave or whatever, and that gold was filled with impurities. And the way you could make that gold pure, like the gold you're looking at in the picture there, was by heating it up. And they would heat it up so hot that the gold would actually melt, because gold has a melting point. And all those impurities would start to burn up and burn away. And those impurities would start to rise to the top of the gold, and it still wouldn't be done. Then you turn it up even hotter and hotter until all of that dross begins to melt away. And I've heard said before that the, the way a refiner knows that the gold is pure, he looks down, he or she looks down at the gold and can see his own image. Like a mirror. So God is the one through Jesus who is refining us from sin. Sometimes to do that, he raises up the heat of our lives. He makes it hotter and hotter until what? Man, until he can look down at us and begin to see his own image. He's the fuller soap. He's the refiner's fire. And just the point, we, we don't get holy without Jesus. It doesn't happen without him. That's the only way we get holy. We might look at people from another religion, let's say, and say, he's a holy man. But what do we mean by that? Right? Praise a lot. He meditates. Holy just means to be set apart. What is he set apart for? Uh, to be holy is to be set apart for the Lord. God is the one who changes us, makes us holy both in status, but also in our actions, also in our lives, and he does it through his son. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus, you will begin to change. It's not a maybe, it's a definite. Your life will begin to change as God is in the business of making people holy. And I just encourage you, if you're here and maybe... You don't know Jesus. You have never begun a relationship with him through faith. I would encourage you to do that right here, right now. To talk directly to him. To look to him as Savior. Say, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. I want you as the Lord of my life. I need you to forgive me. I need you as the fuller who wipes me clean. I need you as the refiner's fire. Burn away the dross. He does it through the messenger of the gospel. My question for us as a church, are we becoming more holy as we walk with Jesus? Are our lives becoming more and more set apart for him? Are we becoming together as a church truly a, a Jesus-centered community? That's our vision as a church. It's, it's that everything we do is centered around the Lord Jesus and what he's done. Are we getting to know the Lord more? Are we continuing to always grow? That's one thing I want us for our church, to always be growing. Never never be satisfied with the status quo. Always say, we have more room to go. We have more room to grow as a church. We want the gospel to continually to shape us more and more so. That's one of the reasons why we're doing new bylaws. Not because we're saying the old bylaws are bad, but because we're saying we want to continue to grow. We want to continue to change to grow. I think this is, this is something that uh, a lot of people struggle with. You know, we have a program to do ministry. But the program is only there to help us be faithful to the Lord. But as we begin to change, or life begins to change, those programs change along with our ministry. So we're constantly looking at what we do uh, as a church and saying, how can we do this better? How can we minister more faithfully? How can we be more faithful to the Lord? And I know that we get attached to a specific program and say, I don't want to see that change. I don't want to see that stop. I don't want to see anything happen to that. 
Friends, that's the process that God calls us to constantly be growing. I'll give you an example. I used one last week. We used to do Sunday school. And most churches used to have Sunday school. For years, churches had Sunday school. Not too many years, by the way. I think it started in the 1800s. Not something that goes back to the Bible. But churches would have a school for kids that met before the service. And they would bus kids in, and they would sit in like a classroom, just like their, their regular you know, public school. They would come, and they would sit down in the classroom, and they would learn. And eventually, we realized that the Sunday schools are sort of starting to fade away. By the end, it dwindled down to just a couple of kids. And so we said, let's change the program. Let's not change ministering to kids. That's what we want to do. Let's change the shell, but keep the kernel. Let's keep what it's really all about. And we changed it to Kid Town, which now ministers to much, many more kids in a different form. And friends, I know that that's, that's true of so many different areas of our church. Things begin to change. You know, some people look back and say, I like the way we used to do choir. I like the way we, the, the, the organ we used to have. I like the old programs that we used to have. But friends, that's the process of our church. We're constantly growing. We constantly want to be like the refiner's fire, looking at it and saying, what is helping us minister to people and actually reach people? You know, it's every area of our church, every area of our church, Jesus sent. Is there any part of our church that which Jesus is not the center of what we're doing? Is our worship Jesus-centered? We want to always look at our worship and make sure it's Jesus-centered. Make sure our, our, our sermons are always Jesus-centered. You're not coming just to hear some nice, uh, uplifting message that is not about Jesus. An uplifting message, hopefully, yes, but it is also about Jesus as well. We want to make sure all of our worship, I mean, when we think of the Lord's Supper, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper today, right? What is the Lord's Supper? It's a celebration of Jesus, his body broken for us. His blood shed for us. We're going to have a couple of baptisms in a couple of weeks. On March 19th, we have uh, Mallory's going to get baptized in Liga. So we have two baptisms then. We have another baptism later on in April, another baptism maybe this fall. What is a baptism? It's a celebration of Jesus, our old self. Dead. And as we rise from the water, celebrating a new life with Jesus. Our worship is Jesus, and our community groups Jesus. Yes, they're highly relational, and we want that. They're meant for us to spend time together in small groups. But it's Jesus at the center. It's not just a time to hang out. It's also a time to enjoy the presence of Jesus in prayer and study and fellowship. Is our outreach and our mission Jesus-centered? I think this is really important. You know, sometimes our outreach and mission can just be social, which means it just be about uh, helping the poor, which is extremely important. But it's more than that. It's also introducing people to Jesus. He's the refiner's fire. He's the holy soul. He's the way that the Lord sanctifies his people. The way he makes us holy. He's the messenger of the covenant. Verse 25, another way in which we grow in being set apart for God is to stand in awe of God's judgment and justice. Stand in awe of his judgment and justice. Verse 5, he says, God says, I will draw near. And what does he draw near? He draws near for judgment. For judgment. Because people had, had been uh, acting in disobedience. And he says, I will act as a witness against those who persist. And he lists out some of these, those who are living in unrepentant sin. Those who are living in unrepentant He gives us a list of those people. He starts off with sorcerers, which may be a, a, a category of sin that we're not too familiar with. Uh, I've, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, when it comes to magic in the world of fantasy, it's, an, it's, a, uh, it's a good thing because it shows us more about our own world. 
When it comes to magic in the real world, which is a manipulation of the world that God has made, it becomes an evil thing. I think that's helpful. Magic in fantasy world, in fiction world, is fine. Magic, when we try to use it in this world to manipulate this world, can become evil. Just as a one application of it, I'm always surprised when I watch, I see uh, Christians, people who follow Christ, who still follow astrology. You know, they're still saying, well, you know, my, my Pisces and my sign tells me this. And it just amazes me that you can, in one sense, say, I follow the Lord of this universe. And at the same sense, I'm following this magic art here that's supposed to tell me about my future. But it's also adulterers. Those who, uh, we talked about this last week, are unfaithful to their, their wife or their husband. Those who swear falsely. Right? One of the Ten Commandments do not bear false witness. Uh, which is really to lie or to slander somebody, to speak wrongly and dishonestly about somebody else. And then he lists those who take advantage of others, and he gives a list of vulnerable people that are often taken advantage of. The worker, the hired worker, those who take advantage of widows and the fatherless. And he mentions here the foreigner, the sojourner, those who are constantly oppressing other people or using their power to oppress other people. And then he says, those who don't fear. God's saying, I'm going to draw near, but it's going to be with judgment. One way we grow in holiness, friends, is to recognize that God is just and God is judge. Now, you might say, well, we're not supposed to judge each other. Absolutely right. Well, yes and no. Uh, We don't judge each other. (laughs) We don't, you know, uh, Matthew chapter 7, do not judge, lest you be judged. By the same measure you you judge others, it will be measured to you. But I think we can all agree that God is the judge. And he will always judge fairly. Just like any judge in this world, you would expect a judge to judge with fairness. That if there's injustice right in front of his or her face, what would you expect him to do? But speak out and bring judgment. So God is a God who rightly brings judgment. And I would just say this, this is something we don't, you don't say too often, but actually fear of judgment Fear of hell is not necessarily a bad motive. We find it all over the Bible. Now, it's not the only motive for believing in Jesus. I hope it's not the only motive. But there are many people throughout church history who said that's where their faith began. It's a recognition that God is the judge of all the earth, and I don't want to face him and have to answer to my sin. I fear for that earth. Now, hopefully it goes beyond that to a deep sense of the love of God and his mercy and the relationship that we can have with him and know him. Understand that fear is not necessarily a bad motive towards holiness. Even as a Christian, it's used the discipline of the Lord, the fatherly discipline of the Lord. Now, I look at my life, and oftentimes I think, I'm, my life is so blessed. I have so many things in my, my family, and especially good health, and church family that I love, and that loves me. So I hope you guys love me. I think you guys love me. <laughs> I, didn't, I wasn't expecting that. But nevertheless, I fear the fatherly discipline. Not that I would lose my salvation, but if I were to disobey and do something displeasing in this society, if I remove the Lord's blessing for me, because he loves me, because of his fatherly discipline. Friends, let's remember. Let's remember that the Lord is judge and is just. Not always peaches and cream. He's holy. Never forget that. Never make light of the holiness of God. Never not recognize the seriousness of it. Really, what that should lead us right to is the fact that as the judge, he has provided us salvation in Jesus. He's provided us a sacrifice. 
he writes, if we don't have a, a clear and large sense of the justice of God, then we won't have a great uh, sense of what Christ has done for us in taking that judgment away. The bigger we see God, the more we understand his holiness, the more we understand the power of the gospel that Jesus has forgiven us for our sins and has made us clean. Be grateful for what he has done. And let's be willing to tell others about a God who is so good, so just and so holy that he cannot look, just look past sin, but so good and loving that he would send us his son, the Lord Jesus. Third, take advantage of the blessings of generosity. Chapter uh, 3, verses 6 through 12. Malachi calls them to generosity. God reminds them that he doesn't change. And then because of that, his mercy is renewed and they're not consumed. But then he does tell them, you are robbing me. And there they ask what many of us would probably ask, how are we robbing you, God? And God's answer is, with your tithes and your contributions. You can imagine, as Israel begins to become less and less faithful to the Lord, what happens? Their giving begins to go down. If they believe, well, what does it matter if you follow the Lord? What does it make any difference in your life? We're blessed just as much if you follow or if you don't. Where's the God of justice? You can imagine what's going to shortly follow is their lack of giving. And God says, no. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and then watch what I'll do. Go ahead and test me on this. Be faithful to me and see what happens. I will open the windows of heaven for you. I'll bless your crops because of your faithfulness. And then all the nations will look and see Israel and say, it's the land of delight. Test me on this. He's saying, be faithful to me when, when you're giving and see what happens from there. Because holiness leads to generous giving. It's generous giving. Israel's heart was moved away from the Lord, so they're giving followed. And vice versa, friends. When our hearts are moved towards the Lord, our giving follows just the same. You know, I think about tithing. I know tithing can be a controversial thing. Um, sometimes it's, uh, I think tithing is a principle in Scripture, and it's a good one, and it's one we should follow if you're a follower of Christ. If you're here and you're a visitor, just like uh, Josh Williams said, we don't expect anything from you. This is, we're not after money. That's not our point here. We just want you to come and you feel welcome. Uh, but for those who regularly come here, for our members, this is an important part of our Christian life. We want to follow the Lord. The principle of tithing is found all over the Bible. It actually goes back to Cain and Abel. And their first, the giving of their first fruits. Even Abraham, well before the law, gave one-tenth to Melchizedek. Then you have the law of Moses. It's all over the law. It's the minimum standard for God's people in giving. Then you come to the New Testament, and Jesus reaffirms the call to tithe. Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He reaffirms this principle of giving. I think it's important for us to recognize that as his people. I would just say, friends, that tithing uh, is something, is, for those who don't know, is giving a portion, one-tenth, to the Lord. Just that first portion to him, recognizing him to be worthy of that and calling us to be faithful. Contributions are that which is given above and beyond that of the tithe. I just want to throw out here at this point in time, uh, this class, Financial Peace University, that's taught by the Qurans. I know we have a pretty decent-sized class right now, but it's so helpful, friends, that I want to strongly recommend that the Qur'ans teach it again, and maybe even start teaching it at least once a year, and encourage people to go to it. But I think it's so helpful to recognize that all of our money ultimately belongs to the Lord, and we're called to be good stewards over the whole thing. 
Now, here's the neat thing about us, friends, as a church. The Lord has been so generous to us in providing for us. And he calls us to be generous as his people. He calls you personally, me personally, to be generous. That we give not only of our treasure, but of our time as well, our energy. It all belongs to the Lord. Friends, we need your faithfulness. Here's the thing. We, we don't need your money, really, ultimately. Because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He can provide it any way he wants. We need your faithfulness. We need your faithfulness to the Lord. You'll be blessed and faithful. We want this to be true of us as a church as well. That we as a church are generous to give. We have our budget meeting coming up on March 19th. I want to encourage you to come to that. I would love to get to the point where we as a church are giving away half of what we take in. That would be wonderful if we could give away more above and beyond the bills and salaries and all that. We could actually give more to the work of the Lord. One thing we've watched and seen happen here at our church is the Lord has provided so amazingly with so little. Uh, things, have, things have changed in our church. Uh, for those, This is a, a word for those who have been with our church for a long time. If you're a visitor, don't worry about this. This is really for, for those who have been here for a while. You know that the the congregation has changed a lot over the years. So we've lost a lot of our wealthier people, I guess you could say, uh, who would be big givers. Our budget has gone down considerably, and yet the Lord continues to provide. If you were to tell me, told me last year, that we would have paid off our entire mortgage this year, I probably would have a difficult time believing it. In fact, I think some people thought it was a joke when I said, look, we actually just paid off our entire mortgage as a church because it's that amazing. God continues to provide sometimes with anonymous gifts in the moon. God continues to provide with us being careful stewards of what we have, with changing our eating system and being cautious about our budget and make sure we're using every dollar we receive in its biggest impact for Him. Even now, we just found out that this is a neat little blessing that came. The city would like to use our, our parking lots for the courthouse because the courthouse is ha- uh, parking lot is having some renovations. And because of that, that helps us with plowing. And the Lord just continues to provide in amazing and supernatural ways. Brother, I would say what Malachi is saying here, I've seen it in our church, I've seen it in my own life. Trust the Lord for being faithful to Him. He will open the floodgates. It doesn't always mean he's going to give you wealth. He will provide for you in every way. And that he sees you faithful. And brother, it's not just through the church that we're called to generosity in general. When you see a need, help that need directly. Don't say, well, then I don't, I don't get the tax benefit. So what about the tax benefit? If you see a need, help a need. Friends, one thing I think we'll find is helping people and being generous is fun. It's fun. Actually, it said it's more blessed to give than to receive, right? To be on the giving side is actually a lot of fun. Friends, be generous. It's part of our faithfulness. It reveals, friends, their tithe was not so much that their tithe would, would bring about the blessing, but their tithe revealed their lack of faithfulness. And so he's calling Israel to be faithful once again, and that their faithfulness then would ultimately be shown in their giving. One commentator, Andrew Hill, writes, The challenge to test God by responding in obedience and bringing the required tithe was not a cause and effect formula for material blessing. Malachi recognized that this robbery of God was merely a symptom of a more serious cancer. The stinginess of post-exilic Judah was rooted in unbelief. They didn't trust the Lord, and that's why they're giving what is not what our God wants. And then, friends, verses 13 to 15, we grow in holiness by counting the cost of serving. 
counting the cost. Recognize that it's better to serve the Lord than to not. It's better to be holy and set apart for him than it is to not be. God says, your words have been hard against me. It's almost as if God is hurt. He's hurt by his people and the way they treat him. They say it's vain to serve God. There's no profit in it. That the arrogant are just as blessed. That evildoers prosper. And the Lord doesn't care. We might say the same today. I know somebody who's an atheist or doesn't believe in the Lord at all, and yet he's more blessed than I am in his life. Recognize, friends, all belongs to him. All belongs to him. Here are the lies that we hear sometimes. It's your time. It's your time. Don't waste it. Don't waste your time going to church, going to worship. It's your time. Don't get involved in a community group. You know, that's that's one night a week that you could be doing something else. You could be watching your favorite TV program, whatever it is. Don't waste your time serving other people. Get yourself to look out for here. Look out for the real trinity. Me, myself, and I. Of course, your money. It's your money. Don't give it away to the church. Don't give it away to the poor. Don't give it to the deacons fund. It's going to take it a little while. It's yours. It's all yours. Don't give any of it away. It's your talents. It's your energy. It's your skills. Don't waste it. You should be paid for it. Don't volunteer your time and your energy and your talents to serve. It all belongs to you. Malachi flips that upside down and says, it all belongs to the Lord. And serve it. And serving the Lord is better. Better by far. Why? Well, three reasons. One, because there's more joy in walking with the Lord than anywhere else. More joy in this life than anywhere else. So even if you're just looking at this life alone, there's more joy in following the Lord than it is anywhere else. Some of you guys may have heard of Pascal's wager. Pascal was a mathematician, uh, and he was also a follow of Christ, and he came up with what's called Pascal's Wager. Very simple. If you haven't heard this before, it's brilliant. He said, basically, if I follow the Lord, then I get to have the joy of following him in this life. And then if I die and find out that there's a God, I get to enjoy him for eternity. I win and I win. If I follow the Lord in this life, I find out there is no God. Not that he believed that there was no God, but just for the argument's sake. Well, then I still got to enjoy all the joys of this life. On the flip side, if I don't follow the Lord, then I don't get the joy of knowing him in this life. And if I die and find out there is no God, well, then I'm only lost in this life. But if I live this life without following the Lord, I've missed out on the joy of following him in this life. And if I die and find out there is a God, then I lose again. But with the Lord, it's a win-win, and with God, it's a lose-lose. There's more joy in following than enjoying in this life. Why is it better to serve the Lord? Secondly, because eternity awaits us. Life is short. So serve him now. It's a great retirement plan for Christians. It's eternity with it. That's the retirement plan for those who follow him. Thirdly, why serve the Lord? Why is it better? Because God is worth it. Worth it. He loves us. He cares about us. He's good. Faithful to us, he never turns his back on us, he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. We know him intimately, and he's worth every second we spend serving him. 
God calls us to live lives that are set apart. We do so by the refining and purifying work of Jesus. We do so, re- do so recognizing him to be judge and the one who is just. We do so by being generous, reflecting our hearts. And we do so recognizing that he is better to serve than to love. Friends, I want to encourage you to live lives set apart for him. Live lives that are extraordinary, that are abnormal, that are weird, really. Be the 1943 penny worth $1.7 million. Not the other stack of pennies in your pocket or in your car or wherever they are. Be different with the life led, set apart for him. Do it all for Jesus. And in the end, friend, I promise you, you will not regret it. You will not be ashamed. Because he is. Pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for this morning, the time of worship, and reminding us from the scriptures that you call us to live different lives. Though we look like everybody else in this world, Lord, you call us to live lives that are set apart. Because of Jesus, because he has come to change us, he has changed us in our status so that before you, Lord, we are holy. He changes our lives so that in our lives we begin actually be holy in practice as sin is refined from us and the dirt of disobedience is wiped clean like a fuller wipes clean the dirt cloth. Lord, you call us to be generous. I pray we do so, Lord. That it would reflect the generosity that's in our hearts already and that you call us to be faithful with it too. And I pray that, Lord, we would also count the cost Recognize that to serve you is better. Better by far. Better in this life and better for eternity. Lord, we can't do this without you. We look to you. We thank you for your presence with us this morning. In Jesus' name.